encourage you to get your Bibles and let's look to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're continuing our study through this, uh, this great book. And today, I want to talk to you about God's cure for discouragement. And we're going to begin by just reading this, this um, episode out of the life of the Apostle Paul in Corinth. So if you would follow with me, we're going to begin in verse 1 of Acts chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this encouragement from your Word. Thank you for this example in the life of the Apostle Paul, for the, for the encouragement that you gave to him, and for the encouragement that you want to give to us. Father, we are uh, grateful today uh, to have been able to participate and in uh, seeing uh, these young ladies baptized. God, we just ask your great blessing upon their lives in the future. And we pray that as we look at these words and this passage, that you would use it to bring encouragement to our lives as well. And we just thank you for all the things that you do. And we hope to have a greater understanding of how you encourage us today and to be able to, to grasp hold of those things And we pray, Lord, that you would draw those that have never come into a relationship with you through faith in Jesus. Today, you would open their eyes and help them to understand the great gift that you want to give them. And so we ask these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Two buffalo were roaming on their home on the range. And the skies were not cloudy all day. And they were just standing there watching the deer and the antelope play. Suddenly a cowboy rode up on his horse and he said to these two buffalo, 
You are two of the ugliest creatures I have ever seen. Your eyes are beady. Your fur is tangled and matted. Uh, You have flies all over you. You're both dumb as coal buckets. And worst of all, I could smell your stench from all the way up here. And with that, he galloped off on his horse. And the two buffalo were just looking at each other. And one of them said to the other, Well, I think we just heard a discouraging word. (laughs) Now, that story could be taken out of any of our lives, right? Because we've all heard a discouraging word. I mean, how many days bring feelings or circumstances that discourage us? Quite often. In fact, far too many would be the answer. Uh, we, we know what discouragement feels like, but it's sometimes it's hard to, to get a handle on a, a you know, a, a definition of, of discouragement. Uh, discouragement has been described as dissatisfaction with the past, distaste for the present, and distrust for the future. Someone else has said that discouragement causes ingratitude for the blessings of yesterday, indifference to the opportunities of today, and insecurity concerning strength for tomorrow. See, discouragement comes to every person. And it's something that we should fight against. The great missionary to China, uh, J.O. Frazier, said this, All discouragement is of the devil. Discouragement is to be resisted just like sin. To give way to the one is just as bad and weakens us as much as to give way to the other. Discouragement never comes from God. Discouragement always comes from the devil. And see, when we encounter the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 18, it may not be immediately apparent, but Paul is a prime candidate for discouragement because of all that he has experienced in his life so far. And it says in verse 1, that after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And I'll put the uh, map on the screen to just to remind you where he was. You can see Athens there kind of to the east of Corinth where that red arrow is. And it's about 50 miles that he traveled to this next city. And last week, you remember that he was in Athens And he had this incredible opportunity on Mars Hill to preach this dynamic message to the intellectual, to the philosophical elite of Athens. But when he began to explain to them the nature of the true and living God, a a dynamic sermon, there was very little response. I mean, almost none. It was so discouraging. And, and, and it was after these things that Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a significant city, but it was significant for some things it shouldn't have been significant for. Uh, it, was a, it was a city that was known for its immorality. 
It had been destroyed back in 146 BC, and then uh, Julius Caesar built that thing again about a hundred years later. And with that came this incredible uh, influx of immorality in the city. Uh, it was a it was a strategic city. I mean, incredible commerce, uh, a major seaport, and it was a it was a city that was. Um, was influential in Greece that was even greater than that of Athens. And it was a, it was a huge city, 650,000 people. What's amazing about that is that of that 650,000 people, only 250,000 were free citizens. There were 400,000 slaves living in Corinth. And it was a city that was strategic, uh, but it was also a pagan city. Corinth was, like Athens, was permeated with false religions. And I put a slide up for you for the, uh, this is the Acropolis. Most uh, cities had uh, an Acropolis, which means the high city or Acro-Corinth, the high part of Corinth. You can see you're kind of looking out. And on all the high places, this is where they built the temples. Now, there were at least 12 major temples in Corinth. I mean, major temples, sources of, of false worship. The most infamous was that of the temple of Aphrodite, who was the, the goddess of love. Now, they called it love, but really it was the, she was the goddess of sex and, and, and immorality. And this temple of Aphrodite housed 1,000 temple prostitutes. And when the when the when the night would fall on that city, these prostitutes would descend upon the city, and it was an incredibly immoral place. There was another temple there that was dedicated to Apollo, and this temple employed young men whose job it was to fulfill the sexual desires of both male and female patrons. Even in a wicked day, Corinth was was notorious for its immorality. In one of his writings, the philosopher Plato referred to a prostitute simply by calling her a Corinthian girl. If you call someone a Corinthian girl, everybody knew what kind of girl she was. In fact, the word Corinthianize came to be a word that meant uh, flagrant, gross, sexual immorality. It was a rude, crude word. It was the first century equivalent of the F word. Now, how would you like to have your city be that kind, have that kind of name? This was the kind of city where Paul was. And you see, Corinth wasn't the kind of place where you'd go and expect to launch a thriving ministry. This is not the place where you say, oh man, God's going to do some great things here. Well, every time when Paul looked around, he saw, you know, it was kind of discouraging to see the depth of evil all around him. And, but Paul didn't view things from an earthly perspective. Instead, he, he saw Corinth as a challenge and as an opportunity. And so in the midst of what could have been a very an incredibly discouraging and depressing and defeating time, God provided Paul with a cure for every discouragement that he faced. And as we think about how God worked in Paul's life, I want you to think about how God works in your life to bring a cure for your 
discouragement. But before we talk about the cure, let's think about what causes discouragement. What causes discouragement in our lives? Well, there are a lot of things. I couldn't name them all. But sometimes just fatigue can cause discouragement. You know, just just being physically exhausted can influence the way you see everything. Everything looks negative. Everything looks difficult, challenging. You have no energy. I mean, fatigue can just take it out of you. Also, frustration produces discouragement. You know, we expect to produce a certain uh, result. And then when we don't produce that result, we start to, to lose hope and we begin to feel discouraged. And we can, be fr- we can be frustrated about a lot of things. I mean, maybe you're frustrated about your job or, or, or your family or your health. I mean, there, there's so many things that, that can just frustrate you and bring discouragement in your life. Uh, sometimes failure brings discouragement. When everything falls flat, you know, sometimes we just begin to wonder, do I really have what it takes to make it in life? You know, there there are people that have, that we've just been hearing about in the news, they've ended their lives. They've taken their life because they feel like they can't go on. They're just, they've just failed. And fear can discourage us. Whether that fear is warranted or just imagine it can make us worry. It can make us apprehensive. It, it can make us feel like giving up. So there are a lot of things that can bring about discouragement. And as we look at this passage today, I, I want you to see four ways that God can cure discouragement. First of all, God cures discouragement through friends that care. Through friends that care. He brings friends into our lives in times of need and times of crisis to show care and concern. And in this passage, we're going to see that God brings two sets of friends into the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, the first set of friends is a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. And they're new friends for Paul, people he didn't know them before. And it says in verse Two, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Now this is something interesting about Paul. As he traveled from place to place, he supported himself by doing leather work by, as a tent maker. Now, we, you've probably heard that, but this is where this comes from. Paul was a, was a tent maker. And every Jewish boy, regardless of what their profession would be in the future, were taught a practical trade, a hands-on trade. And from the time Paul was just a little boy, he was learning how to, to lay out and cut and sew and, and put together leather kinds of products. And, and there was a real demand for this kind of work in that day. One of the greatest demands came from the Roman soldiers themselves who, who, used, who depended upon leather tents for their housing wherever they were stationed. And so have you ever taken a good look at a piece of leather? 
I mean, a full piece of leather. See, it doesn't come in pre-cut squares. It's a hide. It looks like the shape of an animal that has been skinned. It's irregular. And so you have to take those, those, those hides, lay them out in such a way that you make the maximum use of the hide and leave as little waste as possible or use one part for one project and another part for another project. It's a skill that happens. And interestingly, Paul uses a fascinating tent-making metaphor concerning the study of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Awana fans, pay attention. So he says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see that word, rightly dividing? It's uh, translated uh, accurately handling some translations. It's a compound word that means to make a straight and accurate cut. It's the idea of laying out leather and cutting it in such a way that all the pieces will fit together properly. And when you apply that to the word of truth or to the, to the word of God, it, it's, a kind of, it's a picture of systematic theology. Now think about it. When you read the Bible or you read one book, you don't get everything there is about the nature of God, what God is like. In order to get a picture of God, you have to read the whole Bible. And when you, when you take all the pieces and all the places where God is described, which was what we call theology, and you put them together, then you have a, a picture of what God really looks like. Now, this is what Paul saw himself doing when he went into the synagogue every Sunday, verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. You know what he was doing? He was piecing together pieces of Scripture from the Old Testament, from the law, about the Messiah, about the Christ. And what he was doing is he was showing them how Jesus perfectly conformed to the image that the Bible, that the Scripture pictures of the Messiah. He was showing them that Jesus is the Messiah. He was putting them together for them, piecing them together, and making a whole picture of the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled that completely. And so... Uh, by the providence of God, Paul meets this Jewish couple there in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, and they were also tent makers. They had that in common. They were Jews. They had that in common. And they also had in common that they had been thrown out of a city. <laughs> they, they knew what it was like. They, they were, uh, the, the emperor had demanded that everybody, all the Jews, leave Rome. You say, Why? Well, it doesn't tell us specifically, but likely for the very same reason that Paul was getting kicked out of every city he went to. Because when he would go in, what would he do? He went to the synagogues and he would begin to reason with them that, and try to show them that Jesus is the Christ. And what would happen? There would just be this big commotion. Everybody would get all upset. What would those Jewish people do? Well, they would take them to the local uh, civil authorities and they would have this big thing out in the public and there would be this big fight. And when they did that in Rome, and by the way, there was already a church in Rome before Paul got there. 
And many believe that Aquila and Priscilla were founders of the church in Rome. And when Claudius hears about this ruckus that's going on, he says, I don't like Jews anyway. I'm not going to try to sort out this stupid problem. All you leave. You can just all be gone. Well, he throws them all out. See, so they had a lot of things in common here. And this husband and wife team uh, became a lifelong friendship for Paul. Now think about this. By this time in ministry, Paul was getting very frustrated because he had preached all over the place. We saw all those red lines, all those cities he'd been. And everywhere he went, there were people who were hearing the gospel but were not responding. Jew, Jewish synagogue after synagogue. And then uh, Paul had traveled so many incredible miles in such a short time. He must have been fatigued. He must have been worn out. And then uh, he, he not only that, he, but Paul probably felt like a failure. And every city that he went into, he had to be very cautious. He, had to, he feared for his life. These were, these were real issues for him. But now at last, you see, Paul has someone that he can go spend some time with in the evening after he's been ministering, and he can talk about the, the things that he's experienced with people who, who have some common experience. People who are Jews, people who are leather crafters, people who know what it's like to be rejected, who don't know what it's like to be thrown out of a city. And God was using friends that cared to relieve his discouragement. So Paul's relationship with them is a means that God is using to encourage him. And then Luke describes a second set of friends, the Aquila and Priscilla, they're new friends, but then he brings a second set of friends that are old friends. It says in verse 5, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, they come from Macedonia, uh, Timothy and Silas, because they stayed behind to, to disciple and strengthen the churches that had already been started. And so Paul had a real strong history with these guys. He's traveled with them. They've started churches together. They've, been, they've suffered together. And there's no, no friend like a friend that you've suffered with. I mean, they've been beaten together. They've been thrown in prison together. They have prayed together. They have praised together. They have seen people saved and baptized together. They have a strong history together. Uh, all these memories. And evidently, when, when uh, Timothy and Silas come, they bring a financial gift from the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi regularly was giving money to the Apostle Paul. And what happens when, when, he, when they arrive with that money? Well, then Paul can devote himself exclusively now to the Word. He doesn't have to worry about supporting himself making tents. Now, because of that gift, he can work full-time at evangelizing. And by the way, that's exactly what we do when we give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. 
We are literally allowing thousands of our missionaries to be able to be on the field and be full-time in ministering to people. So I hope you will consider giving to that uh, great mission offering. So Paul's devoting himself uh, to to the teaching of the word full time. And you see, this encouraged Paul. That that financial gift encouraged him greatly. These friends coming encouraged him significantly. And Paul was clearly committed to cultivating a group of friends around him. God used new friends and God used old friends to boost his spirits. And let me, I hope you will listen to me just for a moment. If we want to overcome discouragement... If you want to overcome discouragement, one of the things you need, you need friends. You need real friends, good friends. We all need friends. And you say, well, I don't have friends. I'm sorry. That's, that's sad. It, but if I, I've heard, I don't know how many times I, I've heard Karen, say to our kids, if you want a friend, be a friend, right? It takes some investment. It takes some energy. And you you learn to be a friend. And you know what? That's where you find real friends. One of the things that we do as the body of Christ is we come together and we form friendships. Not superficial friendships, but real friendships. Dr. Julius Seeger is a distinguished psychiatrist who's worked with uh, many kinds of survivors. Um, People from uh, Vietnam, uh, prisoners of war, uh, former hostages, all kinds of people have um, that he's worked with. And he wrote a book called Winning Life's Toughest Battles. And in that book, he shared his observations of those who have overcome uh, deep trauma in their lives. And his, and he, his first chapter is devoted simply to the necessity of having friendships. And here's what he says. Few individuals can cope with trauma alone. Even the most powerful figures in the world need contact with others in the face of crisis. And then he tells the story of Vice Admiral James D. Uh, Stockdale. He was a survivor of 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, the prisoners in the uh, camps developed a clever tap code. And by the number and sequence of taps, uh, they would tap out the alphabet and sends uh, letters and signals to one another. And, and, all, and, and this, is, this, is, this code is really what sustained Jim Stockdale during this time. On one occasion, the North Vietnamese handcuffed Stockdale behind his, uh, his back. They, they put heavy irons on his legs, and then they drug him out of his cell, his dark cell, out into a courtyard where there was no shade, to, to, so that all the, the prisoners could see what happens to someone who doesn't cooperate. 
And he sat there in that uh, dark or in that uh, sunlight for three days. And because he had been in a dark cell most of the time and wasn't used to being in the sun, when he got out there, he started feeling very faint. And he thought he was going to pass out and he just wanted to go to sleep, but the guards would not allow him. Every time that he would start to go to sleep, they would beat him uh, mercilessly. And after one beating, Jim Stockdale is sitting there trying to maintain his consciousness and he hears a towel snapping. And the snapping of that towel is tapping out letters. And he, and he begins to, to read these letters. G-B-U-J-S. And as those letters continue to snap out, he begins to hear, God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And when the towel stopped, a rock began to tap on a piece of wood. G-B-U-J-S. And when that rock stopped, a stick began to tap. And all around the, the camp, it began to, the prisoners began to tap. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And he said, that's how I survived those 2,714 days as a POW. Friends. That encouraged him in the midst of that. You need friends. When people around us discourage us, we need people to come around us and encourage us. We need friends. Someone said a true friend walks in when everyone else walks out. In fact, Proverbs 17, 17 puts it this way. A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves you all the time, regardless. And they're there for you when the adversity comes. Proverbs 18.24, a man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You say, what in the world? How do you, how do you come to ruin with by having too many friends? Well, what he's talking about is you have friends that aren't really friends. And see, that's, that's one of the great problems I think we face in America today. We have all these people that have so many, quote, friends on social media, but in reality, they're not the kind of friend that sticks closer than a brother. Sure, they'll like your post and make a comment, but they're not sticking with you in adversity. That's a little electronic tick miles away. You need somebody that... Is Does anybody want to get healed? I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, I'll try this. You'll bear with me here.
we have a lot of acquaintances, you know, not, but not real friends. And I, I think that that's one of the things that we really try to do here at Good Shepherd. I think we need to do a little better job at it. I really like to see us improve at it. But one of the things I think we need is we need, we need friends. One of the reasons we have a thing called Bible Fellowship at 1045 on Sunday mornings is so that you can get connected with other people. That's, that's so important that we get connected with other people. On, on Sunday evenings, 530, small groups. It's just a time to get together, be friends, uh, share one another's cares, share one another's thoughts and ideas. It, it's a wonderful time. See, men need fellowship. Uh, women need friends. We all need friends. Uh, you look in the bulletin, uh, this coming Sunday, 11 o'clock, a, a chili cook-off. Men, a great opportunity to get to know some other men, uh, to spend some time together. Uh, there's another one next month for the ladies, uh, get fit, uh, uh, opportunity to know some other people, uh, to, to make relationships, friendships. We encourage you to do that. And look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9. Solomon talks about the importance of having real friends. He says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him is alone when he falls. For he who has, who has no one to help him. If you try to live life by yourself, shutting out friends, because, you know, past hurts or because you don't really know how to relate, do you understand you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position? See, because we're all going to fall. And we're all going to need someone in our lives to help us up. And God wants us to have those kinds of friends. And let me say it one more time. If you would say, if you're saying in your own mind, your own heart, I really don't have any friends, let me encourage you to seek to be a friend to someone. You start trying to be a friend to people, and I, I, can, I can almost guarantee you that God will begin to give you friends in your life. So God cures discouragement through friends that care. But God also uh, cures discouragement through fruit we bear. Look at verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, we know the pattern. Every time Paul would go into the Jewish synagogues, many of the Jewish community would strongly resist him because he's preaching Christ. That word resisted is a word that literally means to arrange in battle array. These people organized themselves for the purpose of fighting against Paul's message. And they even, in the process, blasphemed the name of Jesus. That's a scary thing that they did. And when they started blaspheming Christ, Paul says, shook out his garments. 
Now, that was a dramatic outward gesture uh, that symbolized rejection. When the Jews would go out of their nation and they would come back in from Gentile lands, they would take the time to dust off the dust on their sandals because they didn't want to bring Gentile dust into their land. It was a symbol of rejection. And Paul is saying to them, listen, if you so firmly reject Christ, then I'm done. I, I, and, and all the judgment that you get as a result, that's on you. I've done all that I can do. And so he says, uh, I, I'm going to go now to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your head. Now, it's like Paul's a faithful watchman on a wall. And he's warned. He gives them the warning. But he says, I can't make you heed the warning. But now you have to take responsibility for what happens. See, Paul is, he's so discouraged when he sees his own people turning away from the truth. And and he's not seeing the fruit that he had so desperately hoped to see. He loved them so much. And he's discouraged. And listen, there are going to be times when we serve Jesus that what we hope to accomplish simply is not going to be accomplished. And I'll tell you, that can be very discouraging. But God wasn't done yet. Look at verse 7. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Now, Titius Justus was probably a Gentile who opened up his home when Paul was kicked out of the synagogue. In verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Isn't that amazing? Crispus, who's the leader of the synagogue... One of the guys who no doubt was involved in resisting Paul now has come to believe on Christ, he and his whole household, and when he does, then it affects many other Corinthians who are getting saved and getting baptized. It's an incredible thing that happens. You know, when Paul leaves the synagogue and leaves the Jews, where does God send him? Well, next door, right beside of them. And, and, and it, see, it's an amazing thing what happens. There's just this subtle shift in focus. He, his focus was on the Jews. And now he says, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. There's this subtle shift, and then God begins to pour out fruit. Sometimes when there's strong resistance, God encourages us by shifting our focus to a place that is more fruitful. You know, when Karen and I went to our first church right out of seminary, it was a very small church, about 40 people, and spiritually, there was very little life. And it didn't take us long to realize that what they had told us um, was, was not exactly true. They weren't really interested in doing anything spiritually for the kingdom. And I want to tell you, um, it was frustrating 
Because, you know, I had spent all these years preparing, going through seminary. Uh, everything I was doing was toward, you know, being a pastor, being in ministry. And I had these, you know, this, this, these, this goal, this idea that, man, I'm going to come to a church and, and people are going to start getting saved and being baptized and, and, the, and the kingdom is going to grow and you see all these things, all your expectations, you know. And I start getting resistance at every turn. Everything we try to do, there's the resistance. And I'll tell you, I was, dis- I was discouraged. I look like that guy on the title page, on the title slide, with my hands in my, in my face, my face in my hands. And, you know, I, I called a friend. And we talked. That encouraged me. And he told me, he said, you know, you need to do this study called Experiencing God. And I started doing that study, and that study, the, one of the premises, the premise of the, the, uh, that study is you look to see where God is at work and then you join him. And Karen and I began to notice that God was working with uh, a few of the, the youth. It was just a handful. And so we started a class for them. And we started having some activities with them. I started playing basketball with the guys. Started inviting them over at different times. And then, a little later, we had a lock-in at the church. And over 80 kids showed up for that lock-in. I mean, that's double our church size. And we couldn't hardly fit them in the little place that we had. And God began to do a great work. That year, we had 24 youth baptisms. And, and God began to add other families, young families with, with children. And Karen set up with these, with these young people uh, a... Uh, um, a, not a talent show, but a variety show. Man, they they loved it. They took off with that, and then they ended up doing a play and a musical, and it packed out that church to overflowing standing room all around. And and and, and in a few years, that little church was it, it housed a hundred people. It would seat a hundred people, and there were a hundred and twenty people in that room every Sunday morning. It was incredible what God had done, and it was just a little shift in focus. Sometimes God does that. And see, in your Christian life, when everything seems to be going uphill, and when everything that you do seems to face resistance, know this, God is still working through you, even when you don't recognize it. God is still at work, and he's accomplishing things that we couldn't have imagined that he would accomplish. And listen, he does get all the credit. He's the one that does these things. Uh, no man can pull these things off. This is a spiritual thing that only God can do. And God uses us even when we don't feel like we're being used at times. So God brings about encouragement for us through friends that care and through fruit we bear, but also through fellowship we share. This is one of several visions that Paul has of the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts. And every time that Paul had a vision, Jesus would redirect and encourage him. In verse 9, it says this, 
And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. You know, fear causes us to be intimidated and not to speak out for Jesus. Now, most of us as Christians, we'd say, I know I'm supposed to talk about Jesus to people. And I believe that deep down, most Christians really want to. But oftentimes, we kind of, we just chicken out. I don't know how to say it. We just kind of chicken out. And when we do that, we usually start feeling bad. We start feeling like a failure and say, man, God, I know I should have done that. I, I didn't do it. And it can be discouraging. It really can. And when you start feeling like a spiritual failure, fear and discouragement, boy, it can really grow on you. But here, well, notice what Paul, what the Jesus says to Paul. Paul, he says, do not be afraid any longer. Even the great apostle Paul was afraid. Do you realize that? That's why he says, don't be afraid any longer. Stop being afraid. In verse 10, he tells him why. He says, for I am with you. Do you understand that Paul never had to doubt that Jesus was with him? And neither do you. God offers you that truth as an encouragement for your discouragement. I am with you. And if you're a true believer, you have intimate fellowship with Jesus. Verse 10 continues, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Notice the way that Jesus says that. He didn't say no one will attack you, but he says no one will attack you to harm you. In other words, very soon we'll see that people did attack him. But in reality, God was there to protect him. And then he says, for I have many people in this city. Don't miss this. We're talking about the fellowship that we share, right? And we have fellowship with Jesus. But we also have fellowship with other believers, this is, what, this is one of the things that great truths that the Bible tells us. We have a vertical relationship with God, and we have a horizontal relationship with others, and we need both of those. And so, so Paul says, or God says, not only do you have me, but you have others. This close relationship. You know, along the <clears throat> California coast, coastline, there is uh, <clears throat> some of the largest organisms in the world, the redwood trees. These redwood trees grow to be 300 feet high. Some of them are 40 feet in circumference. And they've been there for 250 years. But redwood trees grow as large as they do only because they grow together. They're what's called grove trees. They only grow together because underneath the surface, their roots mingle and intertwine uh, t- together, and they support one another. You can't have a redwood tree without the grove, and you can't have the grove without the redwood tree. It, it, and, and, and spiritually, that's the way God has made us. God has made us to fit together. We need one another. Our lives need to intertwine, and we need to stand together in all that we uh, face in this life. So, you see, God cures discouragement through friends that care, through fruit we bear, through fellowship we share, 
And finally, through foiling our foes dare. And this won't take long. I just want to summarize this. Because in verse 12, it says, The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, they did oppose Paul and the gospel and blaspheme Jesus. But when, when Gallio, the proconsul, heard their argument, here, look what he says, verse 16. He drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Just as Jesus promised Paul in his vision, they attacked him, but they couldn't harm him. You see, God foiled the dare of his foes. And in verse 11, it says, And he, he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. There's an imaginary story that the devil decided to have a garage sale. And on the day of sale, he laid out all of his tools for public inspection. And every piece was marked with the price. And there was a lot of ugly-looking implements there. Hatred, envy, jealousy, lying, deceit, lust, pride, all kinds of instruments. But apart from all the rest was a harmless-looking tool. It, It looked like it couldn't hurt anyone. But of all the tools, it looked the most worn, and it had the highest price on it. And one of the customers asked the devil, he said, what what is this tool? And Satan Well said, well, that is discouragement. The man said, well, why is it priced so high? And the devil said, well, because it's more useful to me than any other tool I have. I can pry open a person's heart With that, when I can't get close to them with any other tool I have. It's badly worn because I use it on everyone, and no one seems to know that it belongs to me. Discouragement is one of Satan's favorite tools. And when discouragement comes into our lives, it's always of the devil. And he may be using discouragement in your life today. I don't doubt that at all. As I look across this room, I, I can almost guarantee you, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, you feel discouraged today, there would be a lot of hands go up. But listen, the good news is, is that God can cure your discouragement. Because God sent his only son into the world to die on the cross for your sin. And to be buried, to carry away all your sin. And to be raised from the dead to justify you. You know what justify you means? It means to make you right with God. And to give you hope for the future. You see, the truth is, we win. We shall prevail. That's the truth. Discouragement says, no, you won't, but we will prevail. And God has given you an incredible variety of tools to deal with discouragement. And I pray that you would use those tools 
in your life today. Let's pray.